Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 56 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with Matt Kelly, founder and editor at Radical Compliance. In this podcast, we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic each week. Today, we take a look at a fascinating article in the most recent edition of the MIT Sloan Management Review entitled The Trouble with Corporate Compliance Programs. It's by Todd Ho, or Ha, an assistant professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. In this, he takes a look at the fraud triangle and the rationalizations that are used by employees uh, who commit fraud and ties it to failures or at least issues in a best practices compliance program. He really has some very interesting uh, ideas about uh, what rationalizations employees use and how compliance can interact these in what I found to be an incredibly cost-effective way. It's a fascinating uh, article, and Matt and I take a deep dive into it, uh, as well as the fraud triangle and the compliance practitioner's role in all of this. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another edition of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly. Matt, of course, is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance, And we are going to take a deep dive into a very interesting article which appeared in the most recent issue of the MIT Sloan Management Review, which was by a fellow named Todd Haw, who is an assistant professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. And um, the article is entitled, The Trouble with Corporate Compliance Programs. And Mr. Haw, or I suppose Professor Haw, I should say, takes a really interesting uh, look at the fraud triangle, rationalizations, and how compliance programs may not really being a, really may not be addressing some of the rationalizations that he has found as typical of fraudsters. So, Matt, with that incredibly long-winded and poorly articulated introduction, welcome. And uh, why don't uh, what were your initial thoughts on uh, Professor Haw's article? Hey, Tom. Yeah. So th- th- this was really interesting, and I'm, I'm glad you, you dug it up. Um, I would certainly say it is worth a compliance officer's time to dig up this article and read it. It is about 10 pages long, like it is academic white paper-ish in its length, but it is certainly not uh, dense like you're reading a law review article. Um, with all due respect to the lawyers listening who have written many law review articles, I'm sure. But um what I thought was interesting was his fundamental view that compliance programs seem to dwell too much on structures and mechanics of how to govern people's conduct. And my reading of it is, and I agree with this, is that this is more about looking at a person's motivations. Um, and I have often said that, uh, you know, once somebody has decided to commit misconduct, they're going to commit misconduct. I don't care how good your controls are or what your incentives are. Once they've got it into their head, they're going to find a way to do it. Uh, So maybe we should spend more time looking at, well, why do they decide to do it? And in the vast majority of cases, before people commit misconduct, before they think about it, they go around like you and me and everybody else thinking, well, I'd never do that. And yet, Somehow they go from, I'd never do that, to they're going to do it. 
And the crossover there, that's the transition. That's where people should strike. I think that's a very valid point for the professor here to raise. And we can you know, explore that further. But I am you know, spot on with his general take on how we should be looking at this. So, Matt, as, uh, as you know, uh, myself and certainly others take a look at and advocate incentivizing complying with com- compliance through financial incentives or disincentivizing through uh, the stick approach, meaning you'll be spanked or worse if you uh, violate the code of conduct policies and procedures. But what um, I found so intriguing about Professor Haw's article was he uh uh, took a pick up on a strain that you said, which is that uh, what are the motivations which would cause a person to take the step of engaging in bribery and corruption, even knowing it's illegal, even having received compliance training about it with a company with a, uh, a robust compliance program? And he said, let's look at the fraud triangle and let's go back to the what I thought was the basics of fraud, which, of course, is the fraud triangle which is pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. You've written about that a fair amount Mm -hmm. uh, over the past 18 months or so. And he uh, articulated eight different rationalizations, which uh, I thought were great to have them all in one place. Uh, These included denying responsibility, denying an injury, denying a victim. Uh, My personal favorite in the current administration, condemning the condemners, uh, also appealing (laughs) to higher loyalties, and uh, claiming entitlement. And he unpacked really each one of those and gave some examples of the types of situations that uh, they would occur. And uh, in the FCPA or greater compliance realm, I found that uh, really several of these uh, came into play. He uh, talked about the Wells Fargo scandal and really related the, the rationalizations both up and down the management chain, down to the employee chain. And he showed how... Um, Several of the rationalizations led Wells Fargo to uh, get itself in the in the position it had, but the um, so I thought that was really intriguing. Uh, really focus on the behavioral part of compliance, but he he also came up with a, a really interesting set of prescriptions or uh, if remedies might be too strong a word, but certainly things that a compliance officer could do that certainly I've never talked about, and I don't think really many in the field have really focused on as well as he did. And the first was, uh, I think we talk about behavioralism and behavioral psychology, but he actually takes it a step further and says, this is a company needs a behavioral psychologist or behavioral specialist uh, on staff for a variety of reasons. Any thoughts on that? Uh, Well, I do think it will be a hard sell for a lot of compliance officers to get a behavioral psychologist or some sort of specialist like that on payroll somehow. Um, however, not to dismiss the idea because the idea is, is valid. And, you know, could you get people in HR to think about these things a little bit more specifically? Probably you could. Um, I actually looked at his eight rationalizations and I boiled them into two different categories that are about denial. And he has three different examples of denial. But the other five, even though he does does talk about condemning this or that person or some of the other examples, what did he give there? I'm trying to find it. Um, You know, claiming relative acceptability, um, claiming entitlement. Really, it's about somehow claiming some sort of special privilege that allows you to do this. And so now 
since we are compliance into the weeds, I'm really going to dork out here. Um, one of my college textbooks I read about in a philosophy class was written by C.S. Lewis, the children's author. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all these other books. He wrote a lot of adult books about theology, too. And he said that really misconduct is about, you know, if we're all waiting in line for French fries, somebody cuts in line. Very rarely will that person say, turn to me behind him and say, yeah, I cut in line, go screw. That, that's not how we do this. We think, you know, the, the person will cut in line and say, well, actually, my need is really great. I'm super hungry. I haven't eaten in days. Or they will say, oh, no, you misunderstand. I didn't cut in line. I was here before. Um, it's always some way of rationalizing out your misconduct. So, I mean, we really should be thinking about that. You really can tease it out. Um, when I have written before about applying the fraud triangle to behavior, I have said that, you know, in my estimation, the two legs to pay attention to are the pressure and the rationalization legs. Now, the third leg is opportunity. We'll get back to that in a minute. But the opposite of pressure, the thing that you can use to prevent pressure from eclipsing what you want here is corporate culture personal culture, society culture. Culture alleviates that pressure. And then what alleviates rationalization are values. Um, look, I can't speak for everybody, but in my estimation, when I have committed misconduct myself, and I know people are shocked, but I have done that at least once or twice in my life, um, you know, what really puts off rationalization is your values. And you know when you're talking yourself into doing something dumb, doing something wrong. And how can you support an employee's values? And how can the company create a culture that is going to allow for these pressures to, uh, to be kept at bay? Because if you do those two things, you're in much better shape. And if you don't, then like I said before, I don't care about the opportunity leg. The opposite of opportunity is controls to seal it up. Once people have decided that they're going to have to do some sort of misconduct, they are going to find that way. They're going to find that opportunity. Controls be damned. Um, so, you know, it certainly is well worth thinking about things like incentives and messages from tone at the top. Um, you know, I, you, we could look at Wells Fargo, Tom, you and I have looked at Wells Fargo, um, that definitely the tone at the top there was clearly you have to hit your quotas. Eight is great. You had to sell eight products per day. If you did not, you got fired. And this went on for many, many years. What I found fascinating for Wells Fargo is they fired people over the course of five years. Well, clearly by year three or four, employees who were engaging misconduct knew what the risk was going to be. I could get sacked for speaking up or anything else like this. And they were still doing all of this because the pressure was so great. And they knew what they were doing was misconduct. But it was pressure to hit your sales goals and it went on and on. So, I mean, you almost, I don't want to say who cares about the sentencing guidelines, who cares about the COSO internal control framework, but that's how you structure all of the substance of it. The substance of it is exactly what this guy and you and I are talking about. So for those uh, keeping score at home, who want to read Matt's background from CS Lewis. That would be the screw tape letters. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent, Matt. Um, the uh, on the let me take a little bit different tack, but I was really uh, intrigued by how you tied not only Hawes 
work back to uh, the way you look at the fraud triangle, but also uh, the um, protections you put in place for mm -hmm. the three sides of it. Because um, I found his his uh, ideas about having a behavioralist actually um, could be seen as an innovation or at least a step forward in compliance, particularly around training. And I wasn't th so much thinking of a behavioral specialist hired by the compliance function, but really a, a much more broader remit. Uh, uh, HR would be a clear uh, landing place for such a person. But yep. when the corporate um, Department of Justice's evaluation of corporate compliance programs spoke about tailored training and its effective effectiveness. It seemed to me that uh, having a behavioral specialist on staff or in your HR department really thinking about not only uh, delivering uh, substantive training to high-risk employees, but actually speaking to the types of uh, protections you have uh, articulated from the fraud triangle perspective. I think that that's something that uh, would uh, the Department of Justice would would really sit up and take notice. But he also applied the same, uh, in my mind, types of logic to the structural components of a compliance program, particularly around internal controls. And he cited to a favorite example of mine, which is uh, on the gifts, travel, and entertainment reimbursement form, whatever your company might call it, to have the attestation at the first or the top of the page as mm -hmm. opposed to at the end. And um, research has found that simply by moving the attestation up, uh, saying that everything uh, you will uh, fill in here hereafter will be um, truthful and honest, really goes a long way towards incentivizing people to obtain or get, or uh, excuse me, uh, input the correct and accurate information. And that, um, um, so just a tweak of your controls can really add a behavioral aspect. And here, and let me go to the third one because I'm really going to be intrigued by your experience. You have been uh, editor in chief of a, of a magazine. I would call that the CEO of that company. Uh, mm -hmm. So you've been a you've been a manager. You've obviously had to manage people. Um, I've been a partner in a law firm, and <clears throat> he says on his third point, which is that even more than financial incentives, uh, companies can use praises of expression. Uh, expressions of gratitude to motivate employees more than money. And simply put, that's a pat on the back. It's a good it word. It's uh, uh, bringing your top salesman in and giving them a trophy. Um, now, as a lawyer, I would have to say that had would have had zero motivation on me. I wanted <laughs> money. Money, 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 money. You know, there's a reason I'm a Pink Floyd fan. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what really is your experience? From, and I would ask you to think about it from your business leadership perspective. I, I've often said that, you know, you need to bring together people who like what they do, you know, like not just that they find the work um, easy to do or convenient with their schedule or fits in with everything else, which is important, but more, you know, you have to believe that what you're doing is interesting and fun. And I know that for people in corporate compliance, that's a bit of a stretch because 90% of the country would not consider talking about these things interesting and fun. But, I mean, there's that and then trying to achieve along those lines. And I do think that, um, you know, we can pick up on sales executives in particular. You know, any sales executive can bribe their way to the top of the success list. I Maybe I'm naive, but I think actually salespeople who are by nature competitive, they are 
more rewarded when they know I got to the top of the list without bribing anybody because I'm the best goddamn salesman around. That strikes me as the sort of character I've seen in the most effective salespeople I know. Um, I don't know them well enough that I would say, yes, they may or may not bribe somebody. But given the choice, would people rather know I vanquished everybody else purely on my own merit and my own talents? That seems to fit most of the salespeople I know. I think that you know, holding them all up for praise and, you know, taking everybody, isn't this fun, you know, because we all originally liked to be here and now we are succeeding at this. Um, you know, that's, that is the sort of thing that I think it motivates high employee and high responsibility people. Um, and that's what I would do. You know, I mean, certainly I've made good money from time to time in this career and I'm glad for it. I like money just as much as anybody else, but, um, you know, I, I think that you know, when you have a fear component driving you, I might have no money. I might lose my job. Sure, that's going to drive you to misconduct. But if we take that out, if you have enough slack that you don't need to worry about having to bribe or losing your job you know, or anything like that or having no money, if you've got a basic sense of security, then I think most people aren't interested in getting even further ahead by nefarious means. They like, I, I think most of them like working honestly. Maybe I'm a bit of a naive fool, but that's what I believe. Um, one point I did want to raise, if I could, uh, the author here, he said something that I loved and that I've written about my in oblique ways myself. Uh, he had a quote here, companies should encourage employees to openly discuss rationalizations and how they affect ethical decision-making. I could not agree more. That is absolutely correct. But that, I think, gets to the pressure and the culture balance in the fraud and anti-fraud triangles, as I like to call them. Um, that's the most important speak-up culture you should want as a compliance officer. You don't want a place where only employees only feel comfortable ratting out others who are doing misconduct. You want a place where employees feel comfortable speaking up to say, whoa, whoa, this is kind of a stinky situation here. I don't know that I can do this unless I bribe somebody. That's what you want them to speak up about, much more than you want them to rat out some third party or some other corrupt activity that they know. You want them to talk about what is worrying to them before they get to that rationalization. It's like what you and I said and what, like what this author said. Once they hit the rationalization, game's already over. That's it. They're going to do it. So let me pick up on the, your last citation to this article, because the thing that I found intriguing, in addition to the points you raised, was his discussion of who should lead that discussion uh, in the corporate setting. And he initially said um, it should be led by the compliance function. But then almost parenthetically, he said, but it'd be much better if the senior business team led that. And that's the part I could not agree with more. If you would have that type of discussion uh, think of the power of a CEO who would come down and have a town hall around that with the troops. Think of the power mm -hmm. of, you know, an, an executive vice president who um, you might or might not ever see if you work for a multinational or 10,000 or more employee corporation, having that discussion, leading that discussion. And I found that part to be uh, almost as powerful as this a suggestion of talking about it. But you're absolutely right. Having that kind of discussion and having to be able to embed and imbue those values 
throughout your organization is probably the best defense to an FCPA, to a fraud, to a nefarious act, or even thinking about it going forward. But, yeah, I could not agree more with that, too, because uh, as much as I think, sure, a compliance officer should talk about good conduct and values, if they are leading the charge on that, you're going to get pigeonholed as that person at the company who lectures and hectors, hectors everybody about good conduct, and they'll start to roll their eyes. And that's how compliance becomes the bolt-on thing that we do the ethics check at the end. And that's not what we want. Um, it should be the CEO talking about it as much as he or she can and other senior business executives. And might I point out, it is always the case when the CEO is not talking about these things and he is talking more about performance, 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 that's when you get the Wells Fargo situations. That's when you get the Uber situations and so much else. Travis Kalanick at Uber seems more like he was a jerk interested in just winning at any cost rather than sitting around talking about Let's make sure we have a good company. And that sounds nerdy. It sounds like you're never going to make a good buck. Neither of those things are true, but the converse is very much true. And the converse can give you horror stories. So we have seen time and time again. So let me end on one point that I actually don't think we have touched upon explicitly throughout our, our podcast series together. And that was in his suggestions two and three, the cost. So mm-hmm. what is the cost of having that type of discussion? What is the cost of actually moving your attestation on your gift travel and entertainment reimbursement form? I recognize there would be a cost to hiring a behavioral specialist, but I was very much intrigued that two of this, his three suggestions are literally at, at little uh, or perhaps even no cost. And that's um, when you can have an innovation, a true innovation, and you can move the ball forward at little or no cost, I, I think that's uh, something that we should uh, talk about and maybe even celebrate. I think we should. And I mean, and on a different podcast, we could really geek out about that again. But compliance officers should know there is an endless number of low-cost little tweaks you can do like that. There are books like Nudge and... I don't know. I'm certain I could think of some others, too. Decisive is another one by the Heath brothers. They give small examples of how you can push people just a little bit, and then they go in a radically different direction, and it doesn't cost a lot. Moving the attestation, that's the edit function on a PDF, and then you upload a new file to a central server. You're done. It'll take you five minutes. And even a compliance officer could do it. You don't need an IT person. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is, is much more easy than people would assume at first glance. Boy, once an editor, always an editor. Yeah. <laughs> well, Matt, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've been talking about Todd Haw's article uh, in the most recent MIT Sloan Management Review, The Trouble with Corporate Compliance Programs. We both found it fascinating with some really concrete tips that you could um, implement into your compliance program, best practices or not, uh, at at relatively uh, little to no cost. So, Matt, with that, thanks very much, and uh, we'll look forward to going into the weeds again. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only podcast that takes a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic each week, literally for the geeks and all of us. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. 
which is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. And I hope you will join us again next week for another episode. I also hope that you will join Matt and I, together with Jonathan Armstrong and Jay Rosen, for a special live podcast of Everything Compliance, the week of October 16th, live from the SCCE 2017 Compliance and Ethics Institute. More details will follow on this. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.